Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Derek Campbell, a marvelous young actor whose filmography includes key performances in I Used to Be Darker, Stinking Heaven, How Heavy This Hammer, O Brazen Age, The Other Half, and Fail to Appear. She just delivered a knockout turn in Kazakh Radwanski's Anne at 13,000 Feet at TIFF last month, and she's also building a solid resume as a collaborator behind the camera, co-writing and co-directing the short film Let Your Heart Be Light with Sophie Ramvari, and the feature MS Slavic 7, in which she stars with her frequent collaborator Sofia Bodanowicz. That opens this Thursday, October 10th at the TIFF Bill Lightbox. It's very good, and you should see it. Dara picked Les Rendezvous d'Anna. Chantal Ackerman's 1978 feature starring Aurore Clément as a Belgian director traveling across Europe with her latest film. As she moves from one town to the next, Anna drifts through a series of encounters with men and women in hotel rooms and train stations and concierge desks. It's all very serene and thoughtful, more about capturing its protagonist's state of mind than anything else, though, as you're about to find out, that's just one interpretation of what Ackerman was doing. This is someone else's movie. I think this movie uh, feels very exciting to me because while it is a narrative, you know, we're following um, this woman on this very short trip, this, you know, space that is completely transitional, staying one night in a hotel um, to screen her film, then taking the train back to Paris, staying one night in Brussels on the way. Um, and so kind of this space that's sort of inconsequential, um, but the film is also, you know, acts as a survey and a sort of a pattern Mm -hmm. where you're kind of moving between, um, you know, the entrances and exits of buildings, hotel rooms, train stations, and so, and these sort of discursive monologues where people talk about their lives and so there almost could be like a sort of experimental film version of this film that isn't narrative at all that Mm -hmm. is just kind of showing you those spaces but there is a significance I think that it's a narrative as well and that that makes it kind of have this really interesting uh, interplay between like narrative space and abstract space where you have to acknowledge that you're in a narrative but also that maybe each of these things are just abstractions Mm -hmm. you know yeah i find that very stimulating (laughs) uh i'd seen it i guess this is the third time i would have watched it i saw it once theatrically and then once when the dvd came out Mm -hmm. so 2003 but i haven't seen it since and watched it again this week and Mm -hmm. what surprised me the most in this one is this viewing is how um, how lonely it is hmm. as as cinema. You know, people are talking at each other, but not really to each other. The monologues are just monologues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna herself barely says anything for mm-hmm. almost the entire running time, and it just feels like a movie about yeah transition, isolation, and, and how you can be anyone you want when you travel but she doesn't want to be anyone. That, mm. that it's all about, or it felt to me as though it was all about this woman reducing herself to just function. Mm. Uh, from moment to moment, she brings people home, or not home, there is no home. She brings people back <laughs> to her hotel, and she's clearly not comfortable in those situations. She's maybe comfortable with her mother, but I don't know that she really is. I mean, she thinks she should be. Mm. But it's just so fascinating to watch these things happen in relative emptiness. The mm-hmm. framing is very precise. You know, there are doorways and, and passages everywhere uh, mm-hmm. that we never go through or that we go through at the very beginning or very end. But there's just this sense of stasis about how we never see the movie that she's made. We don't, we don't interact with her art mm-hmm. in that way. And it's just this strange sense of someone adrift in her own life, which I'm assuming was how Ackerman was feeling when she made the film because mm-hmm. that's... Or she had felt it at some point, but I, I'm 
trying not to read too much intention into it, but it just feels like someone who knows this state intimately mm-hmm. and who is an observer of this lost person as though she's watching herself from the outside. And, and I don't know, it just it felt much sadder this time through. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm invalidating your take on it, but... No, I mean, I'm someone that enters an empty hotel room and is just like, this is bliss. <laughs> like, in that neutral space, I'm like, anything is possible mm-hmm. from here. Um, and I guess I kind of see... It's... I think there's something really intentional in the fact that the movie moves back and forth between silence and these monologues Mm -hmm. and not a lot of, you know, chatter or exchanges in between that I think, for instance, the man she meets in the beginning, there's sort of um, what you glean about a person when you meet them or what you glean about a city when you're in it, Mm -hmm. how you kind of have a bit of an emotional sense of what that person's like and what their life might be like, um, but you don't really know them at all. So I kind of think when these characters have these monologues, I don't even think of it in a totally natural space of them suddenly telling her all about their lives but almost them taking this moment and representing themselves because when you see when you see the way that's shot that man's first monologue um, they're in a frame together and he walks out of it and into his own frame says the monologue with the background of the German countryside so he's sort of suddenly speaking for himself and kind of speaking for Germany and where Germany's at in that point in time, which obviously a very strange time. Um, And then it cuts to her, um, where where she had been listening, walking into the frame and rejoining him and them together. So it kind of is almost this abstract space and then it being reattached to the narrative. Yeah, exactly. Like, just in the way that a soliloquy in a Shakespeare play um, although I guess that's a discussion whether the other characters hear yeah. the soliloquies. And, yeah. um, but, I mean, that to me is one of the things I'm most excited about in movies, that you can show something, and because it's been shown, it's part of the reality, but then it can also be this abstraction. It sort of is both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we get to see it even if the other characters don't, so it still exists. Mm-hmm. If we're presented with something. Yeah. It must be real. Yeah. Unless the whole thing is a fantasy, in which case you have to find ways to tell people that, visually or, or narratively, which... Yeah, I or think I think it is, can yeah. be a really good way of holding tension um, when you don't allow um, the audience to decide between whether it's real or an abstraction. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think what is so beautiful about the hotel room scene with her mother, um, and I don't want to be, uh, I, I wouldn't call this like an authoritative interpretation <laughs> by any means, and nothing I'm saying would be. Oh, no, it's but, your interpretation. But for me, it almost. I mean, it is this thing where it happened because it's shown, but it also feels a bit like it's imagined because, like she she says, you know, her she hasn't seen her mother in three years, but she says to her mother, "You were with me um, all of this time," and there's something about. And then she lies naked in the bed with her mother and tells her the story of this um, lesbian encounter. And it's almost like this scene with her mother is conjured by um, 
missing her mother and like almost like missing her mother's body, her mother's smell, I think missing this female lover she had and what that was and a kind of almost um, just her thinking about the female body and, you know, the possibilities of the female body, you know, birth mm. and... Um, Yeah, and that when she sort of says that her mother's always with her, I think it makes you think of her in the hotel room by herself in a kind of different way, you know. You think more of, like, her, yeah, her being aware of her body and um, maybe her relationship to Brussels, her relationship to Europe, you know, and sort of situate very um, I find her movies very have like a, a huge awareness of, of the body and you see the characters having a lot of awareness of their body in an interesting way yeah. and each other's bodies well I was going to say it's the way she uses space right it's the way that there isn't any that people are always so close together mm-hmm. uh, or completely alone in the frame or, or they're yeah I don't I'm trying to figure out a way to articulate it. There's a sense that this film, I think, more than almost anything else of hers, really, well, maybe Letters from Home, um, it really feels like it's her coming right through the screen. Like there's no, there's no barrier between the narrative and the person telling the story, the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, Jeanne Dillman is an observational kind of window it, that it plants down in front of us, even the way that it's composed and the way that the shots are chosen were isolated from her a little bit all the time yeah. and Anna is like it just feels like it's Ackerman walking around and she had been acting in her own films before that she'd been playing herself or variations of herself mm-hmm. and so now she's just got another filmmaker to be her surrogate so mm. she can be more honest somehow maybe I don't know it just feels like there's so much of a of a link between between the creator and the creation in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I watched the film again uh, with my friend Hannah Gross last night, and um, she was actually kind of saying the opposite in one way. Oh, yeah. That it is impossible to imagine the camera in the room and to imagine Chantel in the room, um, to imagine any kind of crew. Like, the that's how... Um, how much the movie has kind of become its own object or something. Like, I really feel like I'm seeing that woman alone. I mean, I either feel like I'm seeing her alone or I feel like I am her or something Mm. in those interactions. And while she has these biographical details of Ackerman, I think there are... I don't know, I I think there's almost a playfulness in that she isn't Ackerman, but that she's living Ackerman's life. Mm -hmm. Like, she is Delphine Syriac, I think, um, in a different scenario. Okay. I I kind of feel. Um, And that, I think, is an interesting mathematics between an actor and a director. It's like, your being and your feelings plus the director's um, story and scenarios and spaces equals a person that isn't you or the director. It's kind of, you know, a combination. A synthesis. Yeah. It's it's a position you have been in yourself, um, mm-hmm. uh, interpreting uh, Sofia Vidanowicz in her films, mm-hmm. in your films that you make together, really, to the point that you're now co-directing. Yeah. Um, how does it work? I mean, does it depend on... I never get this opportunity to ask someone. Uh, <laughs> does it depend on identification, of knowing her long enough that you feel like you can incorporate yourself into her or vice versa and create this thing? Or is it something you've developed together? Well, it's exactly... I, I never have um, pretended to be Sophia. Mm-hmm. Um, so with this character, Audrey Banak, that has now been in 
that I've played in four of Sophia's films um, and will play in a fifth one as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, I like them. I'm looking forward to what happens next. <laughs> Thanks, Norm. Not at all. Um, but... Yeah, she began as a stand-in uh, for Sophia um, in interactions with her real-life family. Um, and so rather than pretend to be Sophia, I more or less was myself interacting with Sophia's life. And so I guess that relates to what we're saying with mm-hmm. Ackerman. And then that's... Audrey is the fusion of me and Sophia's life, I guess. Right. Um, and... What's so fun about Audrey or so useful about her for us is that she, um, sometimes she's more Sophia and sometimes she's more me. So like in Emma Slavic 7, for instance, I think those monologues are channeling a lot of the anxiety I felt in university about, you know, organizing and trying to articulate my thoughts and that having been something that was difficult for me. Um, and then, like, the new short coming out um, is about, you know, Sophia processing the grief of losing her friend. So that was, that, that one actually required a lot more of me um, trying to understand Sophia's experience and how she felt mm-hmm. um, in those moments, which I guess I knew because I'd spent a lot of time with her in that period. Um, but I didn't have really an equivalent experience. So I did have to actually learn a lot about what she experienced in, in that situation. But it's nice that Audrey has this flexibility, you know, that she's not... It's not about this kind of getting back into character. She can... Though she's connected by having the same name throughout, she's kind of a different person well, in each people, one. people evolve anyway. I mean, from yeah. year to year, from day to day, you're never the same person you are with a group of friends as you are with your parents and so on. I mean, that's kind of what... Mm. Uh, Ackerman's film is about as well how she is just Anna is the sounding board she's the observer for so many people but she's also negating that aspect of herself whenever she does that Mm. so we get to see a sort of baseline for who she is and then in the scene with her mother all the emotion comes out and all the uncertainty and Mm. it's just yeah it's it's an overwhelming this is why I I just read it as loneliness I think I'm not Mm. sure why exactly because Mm. From the, from the objective point of view, she is successful. She's doing the things she wants to do. She's mm-hmm. traveling with a piece of art that she made, and everyone seems to like it, mm-hmm. that she's being received well. Her life is going very well, but there's this core of... It's not passivity. Mm-hmm. It's just... Um, I don't know. Ennui? I mean, mm. of course it's ennui, but... <laughs> you know, it, but it's expressed in such a way that I find really this time through I found really piercing Hmm. and maybe it's just in light of Ackerman not being around anymore and knowing how she died and and feeling that loss more profoundly and maybe it's just that simple it's that this is the first film of hers I've watched since probably really and it yeah maybe that's it I just didn't even connect it at the time because it's a piece of art that I've already experienced and you know your relationship to things you see again is different than it is the first time but Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know I'm probably just doing that thing where I overwrite it with my own intention 40 <laughs> years after its completion, which isn't doing anyone a good service. <laughs> I don't know. I don't... I mean, there's that moment that's really funny when she's sitting with um, her, like, could-have-been mother-in-law, um, and her mother-in-law says, well, I see that you're happy. And she kind of gives her a bit of a look. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I guess it's not about happiness and so much of the movie too is about you know the narratives um that don't happen i was noticing how a lot of them are like like all the all the things that she isn't like she mentions having had two abortions so she's not a mother um she um, broke off this engagement twice, so she's not a wife. Yeah. Um, she tells the story of this lesbian encounter to her mother, but she only saw that woman once, and now she continues to have these really unsatisfying interactions with men, yeah. so she's not living um, 
life as a lesbian and um, yeah there's uh, these kind of things that she's not and that she's decided not to be um, she's decided to be an artist and maybe that in itself isn't isn't a step toward happiness it's like a negation of these other things um, but I don't see it as unhappiness either you yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, she is clearly doing what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. This is all voluntary. Mm-hmm. And given how much else she's walked away from, she could easily do something else if she didn't find this fulfilling. Like that's mm-hmm. that's not a. Yeah. It's, I don't it's, know though if she could. Yeah, that's know? it. Really. <laughs> I, mean, I keep thinking about all the filmmakers who have no choice to make films because that's no choice but to make films because that's all they can do that's all they want to do mm-hmm. and then of course there are those who need to do it and mm. I get that from Ackerman too that there was never any other thing she could have done that right. this had to be it well there's just such a clarity though and such a patience in mm. her films that yeah you don't see her as this person kind of like racing to tell a story or something but that it, um, there's something very clear about um, what she's feeling and the way um, that the film takes shape or something. That um, Yeah, we find the form more than she dictates it in a way. I think just by the, the rhythms she establishes sort of lead us to understand what's going on. Yeah, there's no I, clear statement doesn't have to be. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, you're being shown a lot of uninterpreted information. Um, but then there's an intentionality in, like, what order it's been put in. Oh, yeah, yeah. That there... Yeah, that there is something, I don't know, like, like semiotics or something. Or, or I was thinking about how you kind of... Because there there's such an interesting use of ellipses in um, the film, like how you see people entering and exiting spaces, but you don't see what happens inside of them. Um, But then you have these monologues as well. So it's, so you have these silent moments and these like very detailed moments that almost are more like, um, how would you, how you would read a painting or something and like there can be these big swaths of color and then these more intricate detailed sketches um and so often when we watch movies it's about like the even distribution of information um which i think can be so flat um Mm -hmm. and so dull and so one of the things i appreciate the most about this film is is the variation in the different ways that you engage with it. Um, sort of, yeah, stretches of silence. Um, and then uh, these moments that are like really rich with information. Um, I find it very playful. Yeah, <laughs> sort of the peaks and valleys, the way that it mm. it refuses to, well, settle down is the wrong word, but yeah, I see what you mean. And, and so, yeah, you're right. It's so much, um, so much of modern, cinema now in you know in any country is about expository machinery Mm -hmm. just how does the scene move the plot forward Mm -hmm. sometimes that's not what a movie's about and i i was i was thinking about the the necktie uh that she finds in the in the Mm -hmm. closet at the very beginning and how anna immediately assigns meaning to all of it you know Mm -hmm. i'm sure it's him I get, it, it, I, there was a man downstairs, it's probably him, he just checked out, I'm assuming this is his tie, oh, it's not. And it's just the way the yeah. film immediately refutes that and her, her attempt to impose structure is, it's such a filmmaker thing mm. that, you know, there must be a story and I'm going to tell it mm. and then it's just gone and we never really deal with it again. But it's also, she tells it to the concierge, you know, and, and so she actually t- says more to the concierge than she says to most of the That's true. men that she interacts with. Which I think is something about how all the men in the film are trying to take something from her and she is protecting herself or 
were kind of completely neutralizing herself, whereas the concierge isn't asking for anything, and so she reveals quite a lot about it herself to him. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't really... I mean, it has never occurred to me that that's mm. a self-protection impulse, mm. especially because so the way that she is self-protective is also on its surface she seems very not complacent exactly but she brings people home she's she is going with people she's not resisting the company of others uh and not necessarily just in a in a sexual way just she's she's around people all the time but how she chooses to act with the people when she's with them um yeah. So what is she protecting? Is it, I mean, what is the, <clears throat> the interpretation? Well, um, giving too much of herself to mm-hmm. these people, I think. Or she's protecting herself from, okay. So I think, I think what's happening there is these people are telling her about themselves um, and they aren't really asking her anything about herself you know mm-hmm. um, and so she's kind of being for them what they want her to be you know she's just receiving their stories like in, in the third with the third man you know, she he gets sick and she nurses him. You know, she is um, in these moments um, taking care of these people yeah. or giving them, like the guy on the train, sort of giving the minimum amount to make him feel that he's not totally repulsive to her, <laughs> which I think he is repulsive to her, yeah, probably. I, so. um, I mean, he's repulsive to me. Um, but... But, it's not but to to try and give someone something of yourself, to try and explain to someone who you are and what you feel when they're maybe not actually even totally interested is maybe a rejection that she's not prepared for or that she... Um, I mean, because interestingly, when when she talks about that encounter she has uh, with a woman, one of the first things she says to her mother about it is, um, she talked about her life and I talked about my life. Yeah. You know. Which is something she withholds from everyone else, well, except her mother, in that right. in that situation. Mm-hmm. So it's the absorption of other people's lives, but giving nothing of herself in return. Mm-hmm because maybe people, she doesn't feel that people want it, you know, mm-hmm. or, or that, yeah, I have, this, I have this conversation with Hannah all the time, too, where it's a sort of idea that, like, sometimes if you tell someone something about yourself and you feel them not understanding what you're saying, you kind of feel a sense of loss of your own identity or something that you've kind of given something away um but it hasn't been received yeah it's going out into the void yeah and it kind of comes to mean something a bit less to you or something like i could see that um yeah (laughs) i sound as as weirdly melancholic as she does in the movie (laughs) i wonder if it isn't inevitable right if you just if you spend enough time thinking about the transactional nature of human existence, <laughs> that this is where you end up. The saddest version of this podcast. Oh, well, <laughs> maybe sure. it's gotten sadder. It I may get sadder. It might. No, I mean, maybe there are other episodes that are more sad. Well, I was going to say, over the years, who knows? Uh, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. We've done... Can you think of what a sad, a sad podcast would have been? I mean, there's so many sad movies, maybe. There are, and, and we've discussed a number of them. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what the saddest version of this podcast would be. I suppose it would be something that just ends with total depression and despair. Uh, We're we getting through, there. We got through Sicilian Vampire the last month. Nothing else is going to okay. be that low. But 
but it isn't a despairing film. Uh, that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. That's what's that's what I find so strange about it. I feel that I'm watching someone unburden herself and mm-hmm. show that's us this this alienation. But I don't think that it ends with sadness. Hmm. Exactly. I she find the ending. Away. I find the ending a bit confusing. Um, How so? Because so if she is, you know, listening to all these messages that she got while she was away. Mm-hmm. So those are all the, you know, the rendezvous that could have happened but didn't because she was gone. I don't know, maybe... I mean, maybe then that does does make perfect sense. I guess, for me, the film is so much about what did happen um, mm-hmm. that it's strange to me that it ends on that note you know I kind of almost would have preferred for it to end uh, in the hotel room with the last guy or something I can see that my interpretation of it was that the the world still wants her and still interested in her Hmm. so for all of the removal she's exercising that the world is still and again I'm probably filtering this through the prism of depression and Mm -hmm. ultimately suicide but it feels to me like she's, like Anna at least, is aware, is being made aware at the end of the world that still exists for her. That, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to keep yourself in a box and refuse to engage. There are people who want but to. But when see that. that agent or producer or whatever, the last message is like, so I have these three hotel rooms booked uh-huh. for you in these next three cities. You can't, it's funny because you can't completely see her facial expression, mm-hmm. or at least. Not on my laptop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I watched it on a projector. It got a little grainy. Yeah, and I could feel her exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And, like, like, you know, she will do it. She'll pull herself up and do it. I mean, that's a nightmare to me, one night in each hotel. I need to be, like, when I'm invited to a festival for three days, I'm like, can I stay for five? Because I I need to be somewhere for longer. I also hate transitions, Mm -hmm. so... Yeah, it feels to me like you should be invited for the run of a festival. <laughs> well, I'm starting to realize you shouldn't stay for a full festival. <laughs> I feel like five days is yeah. five to seven. I've been a juror on festivals where they get us there for a week or I think I think I was in London for ten days mm. once. And it's simultaneously magical and horrible because you mm-hmm. get there and, oh, three movies today, two tomorrow, four tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then... You come out the other side. This happened in Palm Springs, actually. I was there for... That was definitely a 10-day run. Mm-hmm. Um, and you finish your deliberations two or three days in advance of the end because they need to you know, make all the proper calls and alerts and inscribe the trophies. And then you have two or three days where you know, the momentum is still going around you, but your job is finished and you can just wander. And those are my favorite days. Oh, yeah. Because you can see a movie if you want to. Mm-hmm. And the burden is off. Uh, or we we went to Palm Springs. We were in Palm Springs. Sorry. We went to Joshua Tree, the obligatory trip to Joshua mm-hmm. Tree, and everybody goes and stares at the same rock for <laughs> an hour. But to be outside in the sun after you know, seven or eight days of watching movies, mm-hmm. it's that's the that's the transition that I crave. The idea that oh no, you can just go get lost in this place that has nothing to do with cinema. Mm. And yeah, one night is. You're just, you're in, you're out, you go to see your film, maybe you stay and watch the film, maybe you go out and have a cup of coffee or or dinner or something, but there's no time to just, to be alone or to be in the space that you're in, as as you're saying, one Mm -hmm. day, three days is still not enough. Yeah, I had a great time at VIF, Um, I got back yesterday, uh, two days ago, um, where it was like... uh, see movies, go out and have drinks and everything, wake up in the morning, go on some elaborate nature hike, then come back into the city, see movies, go out and have drinks, elaborate nature hike. It was like the most amazing pattern. I really enjoyed it. It's It's a good contrast, too. I mean, I've been at film festivals where there's simply no escape, right? Like, you're there for the day. Mm. And I, I always feel so much worse for 
the people who make the movies and have to sit in the same hotel room for the full day doing the interviews, I get to leave. I, you know, I come <laughs> in and talk, we talk for 20 minutes and I go to have another different conversation with someone else about their film. Mm-hmm. And you guys are all having the same conversation over and over again, hopefully, or, you know, <laughs> or worse, uh, or the lesser version of it. And I just, yeah, it seems like the absolute worst way to talk about art, right? The, the thing mm-hmm. that is precious and the thing that is to be interpreted individually and that you need to steep in before you have an opinion, mm-hmm. ideally. I mean, we were writing, I'm, I'm in this thing where I'm seeing five or six films a day and I go to the thing, I see the thing, I go line up for the next thing, get into the seat, write the review for the film that I just saw, watch yeah. the next thing, repeat. Talk about transactional. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's definitely that. <laughs> and sometimes you get to see a movie on your own terms just because you want to and it's, mm. it's great, unless yeah. the movie's bad. But yeah. <laughs> the idea that there was a uh, there was a day Sunday when I got turned away from the screening I wanted to go see because they couldn't get me a ticket at the industry box office and all that and I went home and it was like six o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in the middle of the film festival and I don't have to be anywhere or do anything I mm. could sleep <laughs> but I didn't I ended up mm. watching uh, another film I watched Collective the the Romanian documentary which is oh. tremendously good oh cool. Um, that was reinvigorating to just watch a movie and I ended up reviewing it because mm-hmm. I liked it so much but just the idea that I could do it in my circumstances on my terms yeah. removed from the festival mm. it kind of gave me a second win mm. which I badly needed <laughs> I'm glad I, you could find that within uh, watching movies I feel like I have to move in and out of watching movies yeah. when I'm at festivals well I like, to, I like to try and understand something of the city as well. well. Yeah, if you have the opportunity. If you're mm-hmm. there for one thing, you can go out and do something else. Yeah, yeah. We just, we don't have that opportunity. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> Trapped <laughs> so in a Scotiabank like a rat in a maze. <laughs> um. But I, yeah, it ties back to the film, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. what this movie is about. Yeah, it's I guess about it is the, about film festivals. The so constant, well, yeah, and the constant demands on your time mm-hmm. and the constant uh, need to articulate what it is that you have done to people who maybe have seen it, maybe haven't seen it, and aren't necessarily as invested. And maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's why she doesn't speak about herself, because it's all in the film. Mm. You know, like if these people would go see her movie, they would understand her better. Well, Hannah said one nice thing, too, about how her responses to these different people that are talking to her, save for her mother are um, pretty much the same. You know, her saying, we? Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> um, like, is that how you say it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, um, it's all very... Um, and yet you feel uh, so different in each of them. Like you, I think, you, with the could-have-been mother-in-law and with the first man, you feel like a bit of a sense of of pity, but a kind of gentle pity. Um, with the guy on the train, you feel her discomfort and kind of her repulsion. Um, with her mother, you feel, um, well, I guess her mother, she says different things, um, but you see kind of her, her desire and her need for her mother's words. And it's actually her mother that says very little, that mm-hmm, answers yeah. a lot with, I don't know, and maybe. Um, yeah, but but it's amazing that with the same responses, um, you understand so much of what she's feeling in each of those moments. Mm-hmm. I find that actress really fascinating. Um, she has such such an open face, and she doesn't really blink. You know, she's really you really feel that she's receiving what's going on around her, mm-hmm. and then there are these you know, very playful moments that she has as well of where you do, I don't know, she really feels like she's not being watched in a very incredible way. Like when she, you know, looks at those shoes and eats those peas, like you do feel like she has a sense of humor with herself, you know, that she's not performing for someone else. Yeah, it's unselfconscious in a way that she isn't in most of the film. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um... So maybe I got the interpretation wrong. Maybe this is the window. This is the film where you just look at something that's happening, hmm. as opposed to Jean Dielman, where 
the performance of her duties is the performance of the film. Mm. And here you're just watching a state of existence and someone is mm. moving through her own life. Mm. I have no idea. <laughs> I never know. I just, I'm, I, it, it is, there's so much room for interpretation in, in the film that, mm-hmm. that it is, it could be any of these things. It could be all of these things. And I think she'd make fun of all of her interpretations. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, the one other thing I wanted uh, to talk about um, in the movie that just breaks my heart so much um, is the second-to-last message on the answering machine, which I think we're supposed to guess is from her uh, female lover, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, where she says, Where are you, Anna? Oh, yes. And, you know... Most literally, we don't know where Anna was exactly when that message was left. But it also is this sort of, where is this movie? Like, what space does it exist in? Um, This sort of actual or this abstract space. And, uh, like, where is Anna mentally? Is she in the spaces that we see her inhabiting? Or is she in an imagined space, you know, with her mother or in her own childhood? or um, And this kind of thing of, of, you know, things being inaccessible, of a person mm-hmm. being inaccessible, but you still trying to find them, you know, this very... Um, very heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've all been in, hope, hopefully we've all been in situations where we've seen people go away and come back, like mm-hmm. in the moment. And, and that's the guard coming down, the guard coming back up, the guard coming down again, the being with someone properly, emotionally, not necessarily physically, but intimately, you mm-hmm. know, in a way that you're there together. And yeah, it yeah. is, it is the what sort of... What do you make of that moment? Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, please go ahead. What do you make of that moment um, when so she's in the final hotel room that we see her in with her lover, who we understand to be like a continual a man that she sees continually, mm-hmm. um, and sh- and he uh, becomes sort of feverish, and she leaves um, to go get him medicine from the pharmacy, right. and in the cab, she looks really stricken like she looks like she's going to cry um do you have an idea of what's happening to her there i was trying to figure out if it's the negation of some sort of sense that this could be their life together that she's fighting back the urge to care for him or that she's Mm. grappling with this impulse or you know it's it's much more of a this is going to require more of her than she's willing to give in a way Mm. Or that she is willing to give it, but it won't last. That it's only this one night that he will need her. Mm. It feels like that she's wrestling with something. And I just, yeah, I don't fully know what it is. I'm, I'm filling in my own interpretations of like altruistic behavior or, or what I assume is a, the most you know, profound question she could be grappling with. But mm. yeah, she just, yeah. maybe she just doesn't know what to do. That this, that to continue or to leave or... Yeah, it's... She can't escape it. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing her with this person that she's much more familiar with than the other men she's interacted with. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, like, when he's speaking on the bed, again, it is this sort of monologue, like him talking about his life and her receiving it, um... And I don't know, maybe that makes her feel not seen or not totally like a person. And she maybe feels a kind of distance between herself and him that she would like to close a little bit, but doesn't know how or he doesn't know how. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that's maybe an interesting moment when that has been the interaction's throughout people just kind of speaking themselves at her Mm -hmm. but this is kind of one where 
maybe she wants something more than that. I don't know. Mm. I mean, then she sings him that song, and that's, I mean, it's serving him, you know, because he sort of says, you know, I love to, to like, hear uh, a, woman, a woman sing, mm-hmm. and she sings for him. But it could yeah. be any woman, right? Like yeah. She, <laughs> she's aware that, it, that that's yeah. how he's seeing her, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, no, I think that's probably... True, yeah. Mm, I don't know. I mean, there's so much of it that is ambiguous to me, or not ambiguous, but impenetrable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly because I've never been a woman in the 1970s. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it really is, like, I, I don't doubt her perspective. I believe that it is absolutely how she sees, the, how Ackerman sees the world and, mm. and how she feels in these situations comes through so clearly that I want to... Yeah, again, I keep coming back to, boy, I hope she figures it out for herself, <laughs> which is so weird, and, and it's not demeaning exactly, I hope, but it is, mm-hmm. like, it's a compassion and a, and a, a, a desire for this woman to, to be more comfortable with people, mm. although that may not be what she wants. Yeah. I and mean, she has the opportunity to engage with them, and she doesn't, so this is also entirely, mm-hmm. like, But maybe, choice, though... Right? They also don't have the capability of engaging with her. Sure. You know. So it's their duty to fill the space. Yeah, like she's protecting herself from the selfishness of other people. Mm-hmm. You know, to an extent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I can certainly see that as mm-hmm. a, as a as the actions lay out. I mean, that's that. Sorry. I can certainly see that from the film. I just. I don't know. Maybe it's... I'm, I'm trying to figure out if, if it's some sort of gendered response or, or if it's mm. just pure chauvinism. You know? <laughs> I don't... I'm not going to be the person who says, but they are trying to help because <laughs> they're not. They're absolutely only doing the thing they want to do. Mm. Or she sees them that way mm-hmm. because of the way... But she also, though, she sees them... I think she sees that, but she also kind of has a sort of sympathy for them as well. Mm. You know, like... The could-be mother-in-law um, is um, sitting there telling a narrative about her li- about Anna's life and Anna's behavior, kind of accusing Anna of of selfishness. And Anna never negates it. She allows this woman to completely have her own narrative of the situation. You know, she's like, this is kind of what this woman needs to feel fine about her life and her son. She's not going to suddenly say, like, the different reasons why she couldn't be with this woman's son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there are no arguments in the film. Really, there's no, no. pushing back or, or countermanding of anything. I mean, I guess in the first hotel room scene, she does ask the guy to get dressed and leave. Right, but um, that's also a clear decision, right? Like mm-hmm. She's just, and he respects it. Mm-hmm. He's confused, but he acquiesces. Mm-hmm. And everybody's very civil and very mm-hmm. respectful of space. Mm-hmm. And nobody's but happy. They, but they, I mean, civil, but I think she's kind of showing the, like a little bit of underlying violence in the amount of space that other people take up and what they ask of you and The imposition yeah. of it, yeah. No, I, I, that is something else I was thinking of too. Uh, wondering if people would have watched this after Jean Dielman, waiting for the violence, waiting right. for some kind of release or mm-hmm. cathartic brutality, uh, either by her or to her. That also never happens. Mm-hmm. Although I think I suspect in 1978, more people had heard about Jean Dielman than had actually <laughs> sat. sat right. <laughs> but yeah, there is this implied tension in in the film. And after Jean Dielman, you would assume it's going somewhere to, or going to release itself somehow. Mm. But it doesn't. It just no, sort of. There's no release. Exactly. You're trapped, and she is trapped with herself in the same way, if you want to see it as an allegory for, or as a, as a metaphor for, for depression or ennui. Mm-hmm. There is no end to it. Even at the very end, the messages say, now you're going to do this all over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I mean,. So if she, 
you know, if there are these uh, routes she didn't take, you know, not marrying this man, not having children, um, and you do hear um, these older women in the film discussing their husbands and their husbands becoming more cranky and, um, um, you know, that the they become the place for their husbands, like, blame to go. I think one woman says, where else would they put it? Yeah. Um, and I, I let him do it because it makes him feel better. Um, but where where's it going with that? Just that... Oh, a solitary future might not be the worst thing. Well, yeah, that I think that she... Um, she doesn't want to follow like an assumed and unquestioned narrative. And there's something about um, seeing her in these spaces, like when you see her in the hotel room alone, um, that each of her movements that she makes um, are kind of like following her own impulses. Like she gets up and she opens the closet door or she you know, goes over and looks out the window. Like, there's something about by not choosing one of these sort of pre-selected paths that you are thrown into this mode where you're kind of constantly having to make decisions. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they're all hers, no matter what. Yeah, and they're all hers. And, I mean, there, there are two moments... Um, in the film, uh, I think, I, I don't know if it's her mother or the could-have-been mother-in-law when she said, I think it's the could-have-been mother-in-law that this this not um, finding someone to marry um, will only like lead to bad things. Yeah. And I think that bad thing she's talking about is that sense of, like, like do you really want to have to reckon with yourself every day? You know, yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, no, I, I don't. <laughs> um, or then um, the lover at the end, he says, like, if I were a woman, you know, I would just go uh, get pregnant and go, like, live in nature. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah, because he has absolutely no idea what that involves. <laughs> no, he totally doesn't. But I, I kind of get where he's coming from and that you're like, oh, to kind of just make one decision that is then kind of dictates the rest of your life rather than having to figure out what you want and what you need from moment to moment Mm -hmm. is a bit exhausting. Yeah, it's exploration or submission, Mm. right? But she won't, she won't submit, like all of these avenues that have been presented to her, she just won't submit to any of them because it means she has to stop being herself. Hmm. Hmm. But does she want to be herself, or does she just want to be, like, kind of an observer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly the film is the work of an observer. Mm-hmm. Like it's someone who has been thinking about these things, but now wants to see how they play out. Mm-hmm. I wonder. I mean, it's it's conceptual and theoretical, and then, of course, you've got people on the screen doing the things. Yeah. Which is... I mean, what is so cool about Ackerman is she has such an understanding of, like... Um, arbitrariness and like like the like the absurdity of being alone in a hotel room that you're like oh it's it's so crazy that this is that through a random series of decisions this is what my life is in this very moment and that seems so random Mm -hmm. and kind of untethered and but I guess that's what a narrative is, is that you select these particular moments to show in a particular order. Um, but that she can kind of almost understand the absurdity of that as well mm-hmm. is quite nice. Yeah. It's reassuring. <laughs> I mean, there's someone at the helm, right? Like, mm. we are being told a story. We are, our, our needs are being fulfilled as an audience. Mm. But what the story is is still sort of up for grabs. Mm. Or how to process it. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that we, that maybe she does just want to show us, uh, like, someone 
walking in and out of spaces, moving throughout spaces, entering and exiting. And that's actually what she wants to show us. Mm -hmm. And then she puts it in the shape of this narrative in order for us to have to to really recognize how strange entering and exiting spaces and being in spaces actually is, you know, which I think is an interesting function of narrative. Um, Yeah, we're taught to expect beginning, middle, and end, but what if it's all middle? What if it's all just movement from one spot of the story to another? Mm -hmm. I think it's a great joke. (laughs) I think it's a very funny movie. (laughs) Okay. um, As far as the podcast goes, the final question is always the same, which is, you know, is there anything of the Rendezvousana that you have borrowed or referenced or lifted or just outright stolen in your own work? Is there something that you use from, from Ackerman's cinema? I mean, there's an outright thing that we stole in MS Slavic 7, um, and then... The image? The shot? Yeah. Yeah. So the shot where Anna falls asleep with the breakfast tray, we replicated um, with Audrey falling asleep with uh, her research materials around her, which is funny because that image became so widely disseminated. Like, it was when we got into the Berlinale, it was the image on the press release. Mm-hmm. Cover of Cinemascope. And it was the cover of, of Cinemascope, and now it's our new poster for the theatrical. Oh, nice. Um, so, yeah, and I think, so I guess really we can credit Chantal with, like, the sort of pungency of that image. Um, <laughs> I mean, it did feel like a deliberate nod within the film, obviously. Yes, no, it definitely is. But I think what I take um, from Ackerman and what I feel so excited about um, is this idea that you can take these different kinds of materials. Um, you know, like we have monologues in our film as well, and we have silent segments as well, and that you can place these different things beside each other and sort of uh, new meanings and interpretations can arise through the relationship of those different pieces Mm -hmm. to each other. That it doesn't actually just have to be um, this total linear reading, um, but something more that is is relating back to its different parts. Yeah, I thought a lot about, um, I'm going to mispronounce it, I'm sure, Veselmo's song. Mm -hmm. Veselmo, yeah. See, every time. I thought a lot about it in the relationship to MS Slavic 7 in that it's still, it's about forging a connection to the past, not just finding one. It's about making it happen mm-hmm. that Audrey is determined to put the pieces Desperate together. To. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it, it increasingly becomes more of an imperative to her. It's not just a project, it's her life mm-hmm. at one or two points. And the sense that something can be so consuming in an age of constant information. Like, it it really, it's a story that feels like it could have been happening in the 15th century almost, that that you're alone, monk-like with this this work (laughs) and have to figure out what it means and and determine its significance. But now with all of these tools that none of them is helping, I I just find that really fascinating. There's some technology involved, but mostly it's about forging an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. And that's something that felt like it was amplified from the short to the to the feature mm-hmm. in a really interesting way. Yeah, we're really in the feature seeing Audrey scrambling around, you know, and trying different ways um, to have access mm-hmm. to this material and experience the material emotionally, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, you have the time in a feature as well to just mm-hmm. sort of steep us into it and, and let it happen. But, yeah, the confidence of that and taking the story there is something that I found really fascinating. So mm. people listening should go find it. I mean, is it playing <laughs> outside Toronto? Is there a schedule yet? Yeah, we have a few more festival dates coming up. All right, excellent. Well, we'll try to get the word out as much as we can uh, because people should see it. And also, if you're listening in Toronto, keep listening because I will tell you where you can find uh, the Ackerman film, which is playing in, in, uh, at TIFF in November in the Ackerman retrospective. Now I just butchered that, and I'll find a way to re-record it. You can re-record it now. I'll be quiet. Nah. <laughs> um, I am so upset that I'm not going to be here for the Ackerman retrospective. Because when someone said, when Brad said to me Ackerman retrospective this winter, I was like, yes, 
February going to watch every Ackerman film. And I'm not here for any of November. Oh, no. So. I think it would be incredibly irresponsible to do an Ackerman retrospective in February. <laughs> <laughs> Just send people out into the world. You know what? You're actually... <laughs> Spring, summer. Yeah, they should have done it. Yeah, they shouldn't even really be doing it in November. That's pushing it. Hmm. My thanks to Derek Campbell, whose new feature, MS Slavic 7, starts a week's run this Thursday, October 10th, at the Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto. You should also keep an eye out for her devastating performance in Anne at 13,000 Feet, which is rolling through the festival circuit now. And yes, both of these movies are made by friends of the podcast, and I'm happy to direct you to their episodes as well. Kazik Radwanski did Strozek, and Sofia Badanowicz picked Dancer in the Dark. You can find both of those episodes wherever you found this one, or on your podcatcher of choice. And, oh, yeah, Sophie Ramvari also did one. She picked Camera Person. You should listen to that, too. Dara is technically on Twitter at cdara, C-D-E-R-A-G-H, but not really. She's much more active on Instagram at Dara Campbell, all one word. You can find Les Rendezvous d'Anna on DVD in the Criterion Eclipse box set Chantal Ackerman in the 70s. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel. And if you're in Toronto, it's screening Thursday, November 7th at 6.15pm at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, just like we mentioned. You're not going to want to miss that. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network sometime. They're pretty good. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. See you next week. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.